listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text to 2057. Send me an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. And as listeners are well aware, uh, my skills in interviewing and hosting are limited but growing, or for low base. But this next interview is going to be the toughest interview I have ever done because I'm shaking. Because this lady doesn't know it, but even now I'm feeling chills going up and down my spine because she, I loved, I loved her and she so inspired me and was so wonderful. And I guess that's what great sports stars can do for the rest of us. Lift us up. Make us think anything special. Uh, we can do special things like they do. And that's why we do have sporting heroes. And I think we can overdo it. But I'm afraid, Lorraine Moller, that I'm a fanboy of yours. And I'm embarrassed because you must get a bit sick of it. But to watch you run, and of course only ever on TV, was to me the most stunning, wonderful, proud thing for little old me. Do you understand that? Yeah, I... Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. It's really lovely to be, uh, to have my performances described in that way and to oh, be inspiring. So. You and Alison Rowe were just, I never felt that way about All Blacks, right? I don't know why. It looked a bit thuggish to me. But to see you two ladies run, and beat the take on the world from like, I got tears in my eyes to see you run and beat the world, man. Oh man! I, and I now know the pain and the struggle and the effort and all of that. I can I didn't appreciate that at the time. But, oh, boy, it was just the greatest thing, Lorraine. So I met Alison Rowe, and I couldn't open my mouth. And I'm not a runner. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. And that's why I'm going to – I'm intimidated um, by what you've achieved. And I want to learn a little bit about that. You're, you're on ostensibly to say what is happening in women's sport and which is to say what is all happening in wider society. And that's this whole madness of allowing boys and men to compete in women's sport. And we want to hear what's happening around the world and what's happening in New Zealand because um, it's hard to keep up. But we also want to talk to you because you speak with authority because you have gone through sport, a tough sport 
probably one of the hardest sports running. Well, they're all hard, I guess, at that level. But to run and outrun the world is the cream of the cream. Um, what got you into running? Well, uh, typical Kiwi family, small town, uh, very active. And, you know, those were the days growing up where um, we didn't have TV, thank goodness. So um, we did a lot of outdoor things. I had three brothers, uh, two sisters, and um, and I was right in the middle. And so I went to the sports like everybody else, but it was when I was, when I first went to high school that I started to shine in the um, running. And that was because they had a longer distance. So we did all the sprints, but I was never the fastest sprinter. But when uh, they gave us a 440 yards, one lap of the track, grass track in those days, you know, um, it shows you how dated I am. But 440 yards, and I beat the girls who beat me in the sprints. Mm. And I went, oh, this is my stage. I found my stage. So You loved it. I loved it, yeah. You loved yeah. it. When you started high school and started running 440 yards, you said you felt inside, this is me. This was me, yeah. It what was, was it that made you think freedom. it was? Yeah, it, it was a lease of life. So um, during my childhood, I'd struggled with a kidney bladder infection that just mm -hmm. um, had me hospitalised a few times. And those were very, very painful um, memories for me, uh, being separated from my family at, um, uh, well, year and a half, um, three years old, five years old. And, uh, you know, the second time was, um, the third time was five weeks, which is huge. Gosh, for And you don't know how long it's going to be, you it's know. It's a lifetime so, when you're a kid. Yeah, that was And like at night, I can't imagine the nights in a hospital when you're a little kid. Oh, just, just horrible. And this was in Auckland and my, my parents lived in Pataru. So, mm. you know, they couldn't just come up and visit every day. I had no visitors except maybe um, once a week. My Gee, dad would come up and uh, if I was lucky, you know, wow. but they were working and they had other kids to take care of. So Five you know, weeks. How old were you? Um, five weeks. I was five years old. My goodness. So yeah. you're running and running as a kid. I imagine, particularly if you're good at it, is the ultimate freedom, isn't it? It was, but it, it also um, it gave me a stage that you I mean, could people really are looking shine at you. on. You know, yeah. People, so look at that like, girl go. You know, I, I was, I was like, um, not no longer the lost kid. You yes. know, I was like here I am. You and know. you're in front. <laughs> and I was in front, yeah. Were you in and, front by a long way? Yeah, I was. I won everything in, uh, in my high school and um, then went on to, you know, inter-secondary school champs and, you know, all the sort of district championships. And uh, But at that time, Rodney, uh, 
women didn't have long distances in sport, so it wasn't considered like a, a womanly or girly thing to do, a feminine thing to do. So it was um, discouraged in many ways. And uh, yet, well, just to give you an example of how things, the drip-down effect, at the Olympic level, the longest uh, distance for women in the Olympics in uh, track and field was the 1,500 metres, which is less than a mile. Gee whiz, I did not know. I knew about the marathon. I did not know that. Yeah, so the marathon got added later on. Mm. So you're talking about a 14-year-old in um, Pataruru uh, where the longest event, well, for a junior woman, it was the 800 metres. Yeah. And uh, 1,500 metres was like a senior event. You know? And and and. You were predisposed to be best at the longer distances. Yes. Now, so, yeah, I can sort of imagine it. I've never experienced it. But to any kid, to shine at something and to have the mums and dads of the school and the teachers and the other kids, and there's little Lorraine running a heart out, out front. And then presumably you went off and competed against other schools and bet them. Yes. So yes. then you are the girl that's really, really fast and special from a young age. Yes, yes, I filled that space well. I, I, I would be well, so lovely, right, because you've yeah. got a, a meaning and you're the girl that runs fast. And you did you find people's expectations? Did you get nervous because everyone's expecting you to win eventually? Um, at that young age, I'm thinking like no, at high school. No, no, I was um young, I was ambitious, um, and I loved what I was doing. And uh and I was thrown in at the deep end, really, because um, I ran my first national championships in the senior women's event when I was 14. And Wait, so, so hang on. Yeah. What would be the normal age for running a senior women's event at that stage? Uh, well, you'd have to be over 18. So you were running at 14 in the senior women's Yes, because there was no um, championship for junior ah. women. So, you know, women were not sort of considered, it was a, it was a man's domain. and they Was were it a struggle? Was it a struggle to get into that at 14? No, no, I was just, uh, you know, I earned my place. But I learned to compete against women that were much older and yes. most of them were faster than me. And, uh and so, so you you hurt. you felt the you you were competing against people that could beat you, and so you were challenged to do better. Whereas if you'd stayed with fourteen-year-olds, it was easy for you. Yes, oh, how wonderful! <laughs> yes. Well, there weren't many fourteen-year-old girls running. There weren't enough. They they mm. wouldn't have filled a field. It. Mm. 
you know, and so how did you at high school train? Uh, well, first of all, my phys ed teacher gave me a little training program. And then uh, when it seemed that I really had some talent, uh, the president of our club took me to um, Tokoroa, where John Davies was living. And John mm-hmm. Davies was, was a protege of Arthur Lydiard. Mm-hmm. And John had won a bronze medal in the 1500 metres in the neighbouring town. So then John agreed to coach me. And so he would send me letters in the mail with my <laughs> training program. I still How old them. are you? A 14. Oh, how yeah. wonderful to have that I, I had some other coaches before that, but, um, you know, but this was like now I'd graduated to the, you know, the upper levels. And, of course, John put me on a, a Lydiard program and he was – ringing Arthur just to double check because he didn't want to do something that would jeopardize the health of a 14-year-old girl because mm. n- none of them had trained a girl. Um, and Oh, and none of them had trained a girl in the Lydiard way. Yeah, like my age, yes. Yes. And, and sort of just going through puberty. And yes. so it's a critical time. And as I understand it, correct me if I have it wrong, the Lydiard Way was long distance running. Uh, the from yes, it's for endurance events, but we would define endurance as any continuous event over about two minutes. Okay. Okay. So that it has primarily an endurance component, but Lydiard had it figured out how to sequentially train the energy systems of the body so that you had the longest long-term benefit. Was he a genius? What's that? Was he a genius? Yes. Yes. When it came to training, yeah, he's he's the training genius. And I feel he did more for revolutionizing modern-day training than any other person of modern Mm. times. Because it must involve a lot of understanding about resting and recovery because it's a long-term thing, isn't it? Yes. And particularly if you're a prodigy at 14, you can't burn that person out by the time they're 16. No. And also um, that age is a pretty delicate sort of age. Mm. So, you know, Children at or uh, um, adolescents are yes. quite vulnerable, both physically and mentally. Yeah, because the body's the body's doing this. Mm. You know, it's mm. it's morphing <laughs> into and somebody of course, else pretty rapidly. What you don't, so. you don't realise when you're young, uh, but you now appreciate when you're old. You like nothing better than a young person who's got some ambition and some go and some talent, you like nothing better than passing on your or helping them. Like they would have loved you. Yes, yes. Sorry about that. My phone went off and my sister's trying to call me and I forgot to turn it off, so I'm going to turn that off and make that. Lorraine, you can, you have a three pass with me. Oh, sorry. 
I can't believe I, I can't even believe I'm talking to you. <laughs> if you'd said to me all those years ago that one day you'd be talking to Lorraine Moller, I would have fallen over. Uh, my, you were, you were, you, well, you are magnificent. I don't want to make that a past tense because it still lives with us. Um, and it's that significance of sport to all of us. So what? how much training were you doing through high school? So I started off, I can remember the first time that I ran, um, I was training, I had my little training program, and when I ran 40 miles in a week. So uh, I had my little book. Yeah, 60 uh, kilometres. Yeah, 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 but we were in miles back then, but yeah, yes. about 60 kilometres. So, and, and that uh, was just building up endurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you're uh, running it, on the roads or the track. Yeah, on the road, on the grass. My dad started running with me. He wanted to get rid of his beer gut, and he considered he was the canary in the coal mine. So, you know, he would know if, if you he couldn't handle it. it. Yeah, he'd go first. Yeah, <laughs> and you keep on winning. You keep on winning. Yeah, and we we ran in the Pinedale Forest near our near our town so we'd drive out and then we'd we'd run on these um on these pine needles yeah yeah Tracks. with the, with the trees and uh, you know and we'd get lost and oh yeah and we'd sprint to the end and you know all sorts of things it was really fun and i loved it because i got to know my dad mm. and my dad was a world war 2 war veteran and he had what they didn't know then was probably PTSD. So he was not a an easy person to live you know. with at mm. times. You know, he he suffered uh, horrible moods at times, and um, and he he drank quite a lot, mm. and he would often get in fights, um, and. Yet when he started running with me, he stopped drinking alcohol and it changed his life also. Now, so, what a wonderful thing. Yeah. It's not just me you've affected. Um, you've given out a lot. That generation of men, looking back, we didn't appreciate why they were like they were, did we? You know, war has been a terrible thing for human beings, Rodney. Terrible. Yeah. And, you know, I th it's got to stop. I it's had teachers at primary school, particularly that I remember, who had a tempest. It was just a little, well, Rangura school. And they were odd, and they could get angry, and they could mm -hmm. get violent. But I realized later, they were World War II veterans, mm -hmm. and they were damaged. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine um, seeing my dad was too young. I can't imagine, you know, a dad and the father 
how do you go through World War Two as a and then adjust back and your little girls and your boys mm-hmm. and it's sort of the exact opposite of family life you know because what you know, sort of world are you bringing your kids into but it wasn't a um you know there, there were hard times and my mother was such a she was such a good mother and mm. She was very dedicated to the family, and um, she said, "You know, you you never judge another person because you don't know what they've gone through." Never, I never do that. Now I've learned that. Um, yeah, people say I've changed recently, and I thought, "No, I haven't." And but I realize I have because that COVID experience changed me in so many mm-hmm. ways. So. Was there ever a time at high school, just talking about that period, when you got sick of running? Well, I didn't have an easy time for a period there. And, you know, it's an interesting word because I I got my period when I was 14 and I was running. And, you know, girls go through this really difficult time their bodies change um athletically much more boys get stronger you know they're about the same in fact girls your hips change don't they which is part of your motor your (laughs) hips change and all of that right so even your physical structure would change for running yeah and the whole fat distribution and you know all that but also the loss of um iron every month so i Mm -hmm. got quite anemic um, and found it very difficult to run for quite a while. And I had to take some time off. And Did we know I, much about nutrition then? Was your nutrition looked into or did you just eat what everyone ate? No, they gave you a blood test and then some iron pills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can remember one of the teachers at school, she raised racehorses and she <laughs> told me to stay behind after and then she, you know, pulls down my eyelid and she goes, <laughs> you need to eat some liver, you know. They're always trying to make me eat liver, but I, I, I couldn't stand eating organ meat. So, uh, you know, I, I was know. not a good I'm... candidate. <laughs> and when did you decide or was it a process to strive to be the best in the world? Uh, I, it just, if, if you, it's like a follow your bliss. I never made a decision, but mm. I will tell you that um, I went uh, into a, an event. It was uh, in Tauranga and I was in the senior woman's. It was the New Year's um, Eve frack meet, which was a big thing there. And I ran in the 440 yards against the senior woman and I won it I won it outright as a 14 year old and beat those women who were you know there were some darn good runners so you know I really like was a bit of an upstart I didn't know my place I didn't have this idea in my head of sort of a hierarchy or where I was that you know I wasn't supposed to beat the older woman Um, and I won that race and Afterwards, 
um, the uh, president of our club, and he was very official. He always wore a blazer that had the insignia on it. And, you know, so he, he was very important. He carried an air of importance. And he came up to me and he said, one day you will go to the Olympics. Wow. And that's pretty powerful for a 14-year-old kid, you know. That is extraordinary. So, yeah. And so that seed was just planted in my head. And that's but all it takes, Rodney. Yeah, but I can understand it too, because let's say I'm a 19-year-old girl and I'm training and training and I've got my sight set on where I'm going with my running and I'm so good and I'm beating everyone. And this can happen in sport, right? A 14-year-old girl turns up who I don't know and wins beats me that's tough and your sense this 19 year old your sense of who you are changes in that moment like that's extraordinary for a 14 year old girl to be beating the top woman in New Zealand so that got me really like like this was the greatest thing on earth for me. Yeah. You know, Do you know what I, I love about your story uh, is the love of the sport because it seems to me it's very easy when you're getting good to start focusing on beating everyone but you seem to love the running and the competing and like there's there's a joy in you i can see it even look i can listeners can't see you like i can but there's a joy in you that i can imagine as a young girl a young woman running you just feel that joy you know what i mean yeah it's not oh that person might beat me that's not going through your head I can see well, that. you know, it, it, it. I got every sort of flavor of yeah. competition, and the other thing that happened at fourteen was um, another girl appeared on the scene, and mm. she was Auckland. I think I know. And she became my arch rival, and I always say that an athlete, if you really want to make it, you need to be blessed with a good with good rivals. Yes. And, and her name? Um, Anne Ordain. Mm. She was Anne Garrett in those days. And uh, we were both, you know, going for the, <laughs> the same place. We both wanted that same spotlight. Were you friends? Uh, yeah, well, look, we were all sort of friendly. Um, but no, not close friends. We were more rivals. So that mm. sort of yeah I mean you know you can ask any athlete and they always have somebody that they they just can't stand to have beat them you know yeah yeah and that's that was your blessing right for the two of you yeah yes absolutely because we and just, didn't we go just home at night and that. put yeah. pins in her eyes or anything in the doll that was Anne or Dane you didn't it wasn't like that you were rivals yes and 
she pushed you along to do better and for that next competition, and you pushed her along to do better for that next competition. Yes. And then a little bit later, Alison came on the scene. She's younger than you, is she? Um, yeah, I think Anne and Alison might be within a year, I think. Well, it's yeah. quite interesting that we had that golden era of women's running. And I suddenly see it could be because the three of you were pushing each other along. Absolutely. Yeah. Because in New Zealand, little old New Zealand from Pataru, you were able to compete with what would become the best in the world, the three of you. Mm -hmm. Which is in of itself, if there was only one of you, you mightn't have made it. Could yeah. that be so? That's absolutely true. And, you know, we saw it just um, sort of concurrent with the uh, um, John Walker, Dick Quakes and yes. Rod Dixon. And yes. those three were, they, they all, it's like a little team, but they're yes. all competing against each other. But within that, there mm. is a lot of learning and, you know, mm. um, I think it's quite extraordinary, but I do think that life sets us up and it sets yes. us up perfectly, but we don't know how perfect it is at the time, right? And <laughs> a lot of good sports people give up sport when they're 16 or 17, is my observation. Is that an observation you've had? that something yes. happens? Yes. And I think, um, well, often uh, maybe you're too young and you don't know how to handle big competition or to take defeat. Mm. Um, and I think I was really fortunate that I had this mentorship of John Davies and others and, uh, and to have this training method which is a long-term training method because a lot of the reason people give up is because they haven't trained correctly and they do get burned out. Mm. They they overstrive um, and uh, it's not advisable for teenagers to be doing a lot of anaerobic type work because mm. they don't have that system developed within them to be able to handle it. And you can burn a young person out and destroy them pretty quickly with giving them too much work. I know I'm lucky enough to know your brother, Gary. And he was, we were exchanging emails and he sent me an email which shocked me to the effect that you sort of peak at a sport when you're 40 or words to that effect. Not necessarily the sort of the best, but it's a funny thing because I may be mischaracterizing what he was telling me, but it was that longer-term view that you've just expressed that we don't necessarily have for our children when they're playing sport. Yes. Well, because I, now that I look back on things, um, I think that, you know, this whole journey, and it doesn't really matter what you do, but following something that is uniquely yours that, you know, you have a talent for, I think is um, 
if you can get that, then you're really blessed in this life. Mm. Uh, but um, to pursue excellence and your own personal excellence uh, is the the pathway to self-discovery and self-transformation. And that's what I started to regard my athletic journey as. Mm. And what I what you learn along the way is how to use this amazing thing that we've been given. The brain. Yeah, which which in particular the forebrain, right? Mm. That, because that, the forebrain, because? Because um, we can uh, work in time, we can conceptualise, we can look into the future, we can compare it with the past, we can uh, uh, use our creative imaginations and... Um, and start to direct the course of our lives. Um, it's and... beautiful. Um, so high school ends and you're still running competitively. Yes. So, yeah. Um, yeah, at the end of high school. So I ran my first international competition when I was 16 and then I was on my way. You know, I was in the the big arena. You were and full-time running. I was full-time running. And then uh, I finished seventh form at school and trying to decide what I wanted to do for a career because I really couldn't care about a career. All no. I wanted to do was Run. be an athlete, but there was no such thing as a professional athlete. No. And certainly, you know, it wasn't a career choice for a girl, yeah. you know, or a teenager, um, just wasn't wasn't in the repertoire at all. So, so I did. The only thing I could think of was to go to phys ed school and be a phys ed teacher. Yes, you know, it was sort of the sporty thing. So I went to Dunedin to Otago University mm-hmm. and did phys ed. Well, Gary was a year ahead of me, and he was also in phys ed school, so that was pretty good. And uh, and got into that running scene there. And uh, so another neat thing happened because the first day I was there and I didn't know where to go, I was standing on the steps of the phys ed school in my shorts and my big old clunky shoes and um, and thinking, where am I going to run? And this group of guys came running by and it was a, a group of lunchtime runners and they looked and saw me and they said, Hey, Chucky, you're going to come and run with the boys today. <laughs> <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> so you know the era, don't you? You know, that was just, <laughs> and, I, and so I bounded down and I joined on the back of this group. And they thought it was great, you know, to have a girl running with them. Yes. They never had a girl. And um, so, you know, they and they ran pretty quickly too and, so I went for a run with them, and uh, the next day I was there again, and so I started running with this group of guys. And um, and, and I they ran were quite serious team. runners. They were. So some of them were New Zealand representatives, Olympians. Oh, wow. Um, so they, they were pretty good. And so I joined in the runs, and on Sunday, which was really traditional for the guys in this – um, Lydiard, everybody trained the Lydiard way back then. And they would go on Sunday, the hilliest, biggest, you know, 20-mile run, 23-mile run you can find. So, you know, Auckland had its version with the Waitakere, yes. 
you know, um, and so Dunedin had its version, Christchurch had every town, there was a group of men runners that did these great big runs. And so I started joining on with these guys to do this 23-mile run. Close to a marathon. Yeah, which goes out Northeast Valley and over a great big hill over the Waitatis and, uh, or no, it, it That out, must have uh, been so... Yeah, and came down so, Northeast Valley. And, so oh, wonderful. Man. Yeah. It must have oh, been wonderful. Get up to the top. I couldn't keep up with the guys up the hills, but they would wait for me and... Sometimes, you know, somebody would put a hand on my butt and, you know, think it was really funny and give me a push up. Yes. And, um, you know, and I just had so much fun. They were wonderful. They were just fantastic um, training. And buddies. did you enjoy phys ed school? Yeah. Yeah, I did. The learning? Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a nice uh, background. And, and at the same I time, did. you were competing internationally through your university? Yes. So, so you must have been special in the class because they're sort of weekend sports people doing phys ed, you know, who are sporty. But then there's this student who's internationally competing. So mm-hmm. you would have been held in high regard by your peers and your teachers. Yes. I, I think it um, it really helped my confidence. I bet. And because uh, I was not very confident. Um, and I did have a lot of self-doubt and self-loathing and all that sort of stuff, which I think mm. is probably fairly typical of most people. Mm. Um Indeed. but I also had this uh, running persona. This and, thing. Yeah, that carried me through. But it and, must also feel like Whenever I ran, I didn't have a great gait. I wasn't built for it. And it didn't, as a kid even, didn't look pretty. But when you see a runner and it looks magnificent, and I'm talking even weekend runners who are, you know, just, great runners and I look at that with such an envy it's like a beautiful swimmer or dancer and it must feel so wonderful to be moving along the ground with your body just ticking the kilometers behind you and a feeling of oneness sort of you and your body and the trees and the group and feeling it effortless. It must be a wonderful feeling, just the training, just doing that. Yes, it is. It's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, with the right sort of training, the Lydia training, you would get to a state of fitness where, um, you know, you can call it your second wind or, you know, the runner's high. But yes. you do. And you're... you're um, breathing in and you're providing enough energy to just keep going and you get a sense of timelessness where you can feel like you can run forever and it's a beautiful feeling when did you hit the big time uh when did i become oh 
my goodness like you were tv news when did that happen i think probably commonwealth games 74 in christchurch oh wasn't that wonderful yeah so um i i ran personal best times in the heats in the semis and in the final and i finished fifth in the 800 meters and uh you know that was like okay now i'm uh, doing well on the big stage. That is the big stage. And of course, the Commonwealth Games here in New Zealand was huge because it was being held in New Zealand. We'd bought in colour TV rather than have a second channel. And we had, if you were lucky, Dad would buy a Philips K9, I think it was, and we could watch the Commonwealth Games on our TV live and we watched every kiwi plus what was his name then bruce jenner no he wasn't the commonwealth he came he was in new zealand games i apologize yeah new zealand games and for listeners you didn't just do one commonwealth games did you no i did um what else did i do brisbane and Edinburgh. Three Commonwealth Games running. Yeah. Yeah. And you did the Olympics. Yes. And I did four Olympics. There so... must be nothing more. I don't know. I'm only guessing. You can disabuse me. There must be nothing more pumping than to go along as a competitor to the Olympics. It's amazing. An absolute highlight. The world's best in every arena, all descending at their aimed for peak to live or die on their prowess. And there's thousands of them. And there's Lorraine Moller from Pataru. Yep. Do you go a little bit crazy? Or do you it's, just keep focused on your race? Um, well, each I, I went to four Olympics, Rodney, so I was very fortunate. Um, and each one of them was different for me because I was four years older. And I had a different perspective each time. And um, yes, I mean, what I wanted was not just to be at the Olympics. I wanted to stand on the podium. (laughs) I wanted to do this, you know. (laughs) (laughs) A very young Kiwi of me to show off. And And you had your role models, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. So who... When you were going to the Olympics, like you'd be looking up to Peter Snell, uh, Rod Dixon, Dick Quacks, John Walker. Um, so they made you believe it was possible to be on the podium. Yes. Yes. And then, uh, yeah, and I had John Davies as my coach. Who, who was an Olympian. Olympic medalist, Yeah. Yeah. And you had a 
your president at 14 telling you that you'd go to the Olympics. He, he didn't say four. And he didn't think medal, but you did it. It's a wonderful story. Um, you're leading into your race. So presumably you go to the Olympics and you just do one race, is it, each time? Yes. Well, so, Rodney, just to talk about the opportunities for women, and we talked about the 1,500 metres being the mm -hmm. longest event in the Olympics up to 1980. Okay. And so through this um, lobbying of really pioneering women, um, one of the key ones being Catherine Switzer, who now lives in New Zealand, but she was um, the woman who ran in the Boston Marathon under her initials and, and uh, the official tried to throw her out yes. because she was a woman. And um, she went on to lobby for opportunity for women. And one of her main projects was to get the Olympics into the Olympics in 1984, which was in Los Angeles. And she wasn't the only one, but there were um, there were quite a few that uh, this movement was growing to get the marathon included in the in the Olympics for women. And it was such a milestone because you can imagine going from less than a mile, fifteen hundred meters, to the marathon is is a big leap. And did it just go bang? Like it went fifteen hundred. It didn't go. They didn't go. Oh, we'll do the fifteen hundred meters. Mm, maybe we'll let a woman run the 5,000 metres, or maybe we'll go to 10,000 metres. They actually said, no, let them go all the way, do every length and up to the marathon. Was it just one go? The no, um, no, it went 1,500 metres. The marathon got included in the Olympics, and then they included a 3,000 metres, not a steeplechase, but a flat 3,000 okay. for women. So there were two new events in 1984 for the women. Okay. The 3,000 metres, and that was a very famous race where um, Zola Budd and Mary Decker did a little tangle and um, Mary fell over and yes. et cetera, yeah. And then the marathon, which was uh, incredible. So that inaugural marathon in Los Angeles in um, August of 1984 was, um, it was like, suddenly this great leap had happened for women. Did you run in it? Yes. How'd you go? But, <laughs> you, you're so, I'm crying. And um, you had been training since you were at high school that distance. Which, funnily enough, is amazing because you were probably, because of Arthur Lydia way, more experienced and more prepared than any of the other women. Yes. Because no woman would have been running that distance at high school. You're so wonderful. Did you feel the weight? of expectation upon you? No, not in that one. I'm pleased. 
but that um, came? It did, because in Tell us about LA, the others. yeah, I finished fifth. So then um, the next Olympics, which was in Seoul, Korea, um, of course, I was expected to improve on my fifth place finish. So that meant that I was a real medal contender. So that was the expectation. And um, I let that get to me. It was a really valuable lesson to understand how you can uh, succumb to the pressures of outside pressures. Because That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And um, and you're young. Yeah. Yeah. And Publicity, yes, is extremely hard to take. Like, uh, you know, I had it a little bit as a politician, nothing like you, but you were a young person, and it wasn't publicity like, oh, some politician. It was Lorraine Moller, you know. It all hangs anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's he going to do? Yeah, middle. Extremely hard. No one who hasn't had it, even a little bit, can appreciate what it feels like. It's so tough. You know, and I didn't run well. Mm. I I sort of didn't get in the flow. I um, didn't enjoy it. I drink and no, I didn't. I didn't have fun in that one. Um, and it's a long way when you're not, not having not fun. They're really fun. They're, they're pretty intense, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, um, and I I ended up just jogging into the finish basically, and I finished thirty third, and I was pretty uh, rubbished in the New Zealand press. Um, Isn't that I, disgusting? There you are, there you are, at the Olympics, right? At the Olympics, running the marathon, which is beyond comprehension. And we're sitting around at the pub with our beer guts saying, oh, you know, loser. Yeah. People take it pretty personally. Yes. You know, they do. And yes. uh, so, you know, as a sports person, you are representing them. Yes. And they, they all feel like, you know, your performance is their performance. Yes. And if you disappoint them, then, you know, they, they'll get angry with you. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> you know, the poor all black coach or something, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you have around you, explain it to me because my memory's hazy, Anne Ordain and Alison Rowe. Yes. Were they in those races? No. Um, Anne did not, uh, she was in the LA Olympics. Yes. Um, so we were two out of the three representatives for New Zealand. Um, Anne did, a, did not finish in that race. Okay. Um, in Seoul, I was the only New Zealand representative. Wow. Um, so you came away with your chin down a little bit. Did it affect you afterwards? Yes, it did. How? It was the only year I didn't come back to New Zealand because I would split my time. I would do summer in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and then I'd go spend summer in New Zealand. And 
you know, live two lives, basically. Um, but um, I didn't want to come back. I felt embarrassed. It was really interesting to see how tied in I was to um, what other people thought of me and yes. uh, and feeling a failure. And uh, it was a big lesson for me. And then four years... How were years you financially later, living? Like, what money were you surviving on back then? Um, I was making money, money from my races. Okay. So there was... Uh, two contract um prize money and then under the table appearance money so uh, it's pretty hand to mouth too yeah you're you're only as good as your last race <laughs> so and i mean you're looking at it and you're thinking other people are getting on with their careers getting married having families and then you there's you 33rd at the Olympics, feeling others' expectations. And at the time, I would never think about this, but you're thinking, that's a wonderful success. But it's tough because it's not just the race. It's like funding your sport, funding living, funding air tickets. You know, and what am I going to do next year? You know, I've got to keep this whole thing show on the road. So it's not an easy lifestyle, even at the top. Yeah, but I I didn't think about it. Um, okay. It was I, just had, had I, I just wanted to do it and I was going to figure out a way to do it no matter what. Great. And so then you're thinking those next Olympics, did it ever occur to you not to try out for them? Yes. Because people had said, oh, you you know, you're too old. Because by that time, I was now 37 for the next Olympics. Wow. And that was considered, you know, like I was past my due date. <laughs> and everybody's let's, like, Let's well. keep that teasing, <laughs> that little teaser there, you're too old. What was behind women not being able to race the longer races? Well, it was a, a belief system uh, that um, women were more delicate. Um, they weren't suited to sports, especially endurance sports. That, um, well, a lot of these societal um, ideas all were based around um, you know, the perpetuation of the species and what you needed to do. So women were, you know, um, supposed to uh, be at home and uh, be homemakers and have babies. And so in this, it's hard to comprehend now, looking back. Mm -hmm. But you were like a second-class athlete. As a female. Mm -hmm. Yes, we were. An apartheid type thing where, yeah, you can compete in this little race, ha-ha, women's races, and then here are the men. Yes. The men were definitely the main event. They always got the billing. They got, you know, the majority of the money, um, the majority of the press coverage. And so we were like just sort of the, the aside <laughs> <laughs> and the officials 
you know, whoever the com Olympic Committee and all that, they perpetuated that. And here's the crazy thing. You were running a marathon every week. Just about, yeah. Yeah, quite and often, close to. Yeah. There they were saying, oh, woman can't do this. But you would, and you wouldn't be the only one. You were doing it. You were doing it. I mean, it wasn't true, is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, you know. It's a bit like saying no one can ever go under four minutes, say, or, but every, but lots of people were. I mean, the facts, there were no facts to this, if you know what I mean. The fact that there were factual, it wasn't like no woman had ever not done it. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was a total, was it a belief system or a put down thing? Um, oh, probably both, because I think we we have our belief systems which give us a parameter within which to work. Yes, you know, we and it's hard to break out of. Yeah. And it makes a, a you know, we have a story within that and yeah. based on those belief systems. But, you know, at the end of it, um, the the belief's not big enough because we're we're always growing. Hopefully, yes. you know. Yes. And so then we need to uh, beliefs are tools. They are not yeah. reality. Yes. They're just tools about which we interpret reality. Yes. And so That's we need to thinking. be looking at um, what beliefs we hold and saying, you know, is this a useful belief? Mm. And tradition. This is the way it's yes. always been done. And, of course, administrators of sport grow up in the sport. Mm -hmm. And so this is how it was done in my day, and this is how we do it now. Mm -hmm. But what you did in women's sport changed the world over time for women, right? Yes. Which this is why sport is so big, mm -hmm. because you showed that woman can do this. You. Pretty exciting, right? Yeah, did it was. Did you feel yeah. that at the time, that this wasn't just running a marathon and showing that women could compete over this distance? This was actually a bigger picture about women's role in society. And don't put us down. Don't treat mm -hmm. us second class. Don't, yes. don't have two sets of rules. That's what you were showing in, in, a, in a very dramatic way on our TV screens. And it was pretty fun. It was pretty exciting yes. to know that, you, you know, you're pushing the boundaries. So, oh, you're getting up to 37 for the next Olympics, which were where? Barcelona. And you decide, I'm going for it. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you're going Because I go, you know, yeah, it's like um, now this whole sex thing had sort of like we'd broken that barrier, right? And now I'm up against the next one, which is the age barrier. Yeah. And so 
you know, I'm supposed to be. Um, so you had up. a lot to prove for yourself and to New Zealand. Yes. But also I had unfinished business from Seoul. Yes. because So, got, yeah. So yes. I wanted to redeem myself. Yes. So you'd got, was it 37th, you said? 33rd. 33rd. Sorry, I dropped you four places. My my bad. <laughs> That's terrible. So you're the 33rd fastest woman in the world over that distance and regarded as a failure. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. It is amazing. And we think we're good because we can run to the letterbox. <laughs> You're training for Barcelona. What's that look like? Um, yeah, uh, Dick Wax was coaching me at the time. I knew Dick well. He was, I knew him through politics. Yes. And he, oh, I found him to be so wonderful. He was very generous and kind, and yes. um, and uh, I humble, really humble too. Yes, valued his opinion. Mm. Um, so a lot of the training I did on my own, uh, but when it came to the Olympics, I'd always go, "Hey, Dick, I need your help now," um, because I didn't want to be second guessing myself. So um, he was. Um, more of a mentor. Mm. Um, he did for the head, right? Too. Yeah, yeah. Because you need he, a lot of head work for the training and the preparation. Because did you, you have to work? No, on you know, Kiwis are very pragmatic. You know, mm. you you do the job, and that's you know that gets your head in the space. Mm. And know. I just realised that elite runners in New Zealand. A small club, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like it's a very small club. Yes. So you go off to Barcelona, but nervous. Oh yes, but uh, everything just clicked into place. Oh I was God. running so well; I felt oh just God. great, and. Um, it just seemed to just come together magically. And I, you know, Rodney, um, the thing about Barcelona is that I went to Barcelona a year beforehand to check out the course and to see what it was going to be like. And so so I did it and all on my own ticket, you know, <laughs> to to go scout out what I was going to do. And what I found out was Barcelona in August was incredibly hot. I mean, suffocatingly hot. And if there was one thing I really hated about running a marathon, it was running in the heat. Mm. Um, The other thing was that it finished on an uphill. And I didn't feel like I was a strong uphill runner. So here's the two things that I would prefer not to have in a marathon uh, that I have to conquer if I'm going to uh, make the podium. So I went, okay, then I've got to learn to love running in the heat. 
and I've got to I've got to be acclimatized to it. So I did heat training, and that is training in the middle of the day and uh, layering up so that you know your your body just gets used to sweating. And the other thing I did was finish every one of my long runs on this great big long hill behind my house, and and I imagined each time that I was. Um, finishing the Olympic marathon. So I'd think, oh, now I'm coming up and now I'm coming into the stadium and I get to the top of the hill and I go, yeah, you know, and I, uh, I, I just... It's like yeah. all those great movies that we watch, like Rocky. Yes. And you lived it. Yes. You know, you're out there on your own, layered up, and people are going past looking at this young woman and you think, God, she's such a wonderful, beautiful runner, but why the hell was she dressed like that? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then you're running up that hill all on your own, time after time after time, visualizing Barcelona. Yes. Oh. You know, Roddy, I, I have to go back a little bit because when yes. I was running with my dad in the forest yes, and we would run along and we always did a finishing sprint right and uh, to but show you had a bit along, more in the tank yeah and um, I could always out sprint my dad so that was pretty fun and he was proud of me doing it but anyway we would be running along and we'd be just you know trees either side and my dad would say listen can you hear the roar of the crowd? You know, and and so we imagined that the trees were all people in the stadium and we were running in front of them. Wow. How beautiful. I don't know how to ask this. Did your dad get to see you run in the Olympics? Uh, yes. Yes. How amazing for him. Yeah. Yeah. How amazing for him. Yes. He would have been very proud of you. Just boosting. But the funny thing is, as a father, you can see it's not the woman running in the Olympics that he'd be proud of. It's a little girl in the forest, isn't it? Oh, you make me cry. <laughs> yeah. That's what he'd say. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the Barcelona run. Um, what it was like for you? We were taken to the start in the uh, middle of the day, and it was a late afternoon start. I think like four or five o'clock. But when we arrived there, it was so hot. It was just, you know, this relentless sun. And there was no shade whatsoever. There was uh, just a holding area. And there was one porta potty with, with no. the, of the porta potty that, you know, maybe two no. people could crowd, but, you know, the, the sun would give you only about 10 minutes. And um, so, I went with um, the other woman that was running, Marguerite Buist, and we found a shop, a surf shop, 
and uh, we asked if we could come in. And they were so excited because we we're in our Olympic, you know, and we were competing in the Olympics. And they they let us come into their, um, it was like a bathroom. We had a cold shower and then we laid down on this cold floor and just waited till it was time to go to the start line. And um, Did you, I, I can't imagine it, right? Like you go to bed, you have dinner, I guess you sleep. And you wake up, and like it's so normal, you're having breakfast, but you are running in the Olympics that day for the run of your life. Like how you manage, and then the you know the shade. It's the normality of it juxtaposed with the enormity greatness of it you know what I mean yes I know what you mean and and it didn't feel normal it okay. was it was terrifying it was always terrifying you know when you'd you you you'll be on a, a bus and you know you'd have all the officials and they're taking you there oh and you have to have your number and everything right and you know and you it feels like this is. I always imagined it was like someone would feel going to their execution. Yes, yes. But the other thing that they probably have nowadays that it sounds like you didn't have is you sort of need someone managing you in the sense of here's your number. I've sorted sorted out your shade, like. You don't worry about anything but the run, Lorraine, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm doing all of that. I'm doing everything else. Like, I'll get your number. But you've got to be getting yourself on the bus, getting yourself off the bus. Oh, God, it's hot. i got to find some shade. Oh, look, there's a surf shop. We'll go over there. Maybe they'll let us hide in their bathroom. I mean, it's ridiculous that you're burning up attention and energy even having to think about those things on that day. Yeah. We always had a manager with us. And okay. that manager, yeah, he was with us. Okay. So that helped, yeah. Because you just want one thing on your mind, right? Yes. Yeah. You, you just want to, you know, zero in on the task at hand. And then um, you go over to the start. Oh, my God. Yes. So but as it gets closer, it sort of gets better because you think, well, once I start running, it's real. It's not. Yeah, it's sort of almost like a, a sort of a relief yes. once you actually start moving. Um, so, yeah, I wondered, uh, I wandered to the start line. There's usually 80 to 100 women in the race. And they had us line up. Now, I didn't do one step of warm up. I went, you know, because um, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to warm up and I've got 26 miles. You can't be warm. I didn't do one step. I just started absolutely cold because I wanted to keep my body temperature as low as possible too. And I, you know, hesitate, the, I hesitate to ask you this because you're my uh, I heroine and idol from way back. 
and I'm a man and you're a woman. So it's a tricky question. But I, I've wondered about women's sport. Like where you are on the cycle, monthly cycle, does that affect your performance? At that it level? can. It can. Um, because but, I'm not asking you, yeah. at a, but at, in general, because, you know, I know some ladies who have a terrible time. And you're thinking, Jesus, if it's that a terrible time and you're trying to run a marathon, it's like one big thing. Yeah. Do I mean, you think you get to a level of sport rest. where you get through it? But uh, for me, um, it there were things that I, I would say if um, if I have no control over them, I'm not I'm not going to worry about it. Great. Okay. Good. Thinking. Yeah. So that it just had to be an attitude to keep in the game. It's like the like, hill at the end. I got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so I was prepared for that hill at the end, and I was also prepared for that heat. Mm. And so you don't warm up, right? Yeah. And then there's a gun go. Yeah. So you stand on the start line, and you know the gun goes off, and off you go. I can remember standing on the start line, and um, and I had, I was standing there, and I looked, and I had a watch on, and I went. What the heck am I wearing a watch for? This is just stupid. Like this is the Olympics, and they're not going to time it, you know. <laughs> and I don't care how fast I go. All I wanted was to win, right? Yeah. I, I, it's like you know, I wasn't, you know, trying to get a time. So I took my watch off and I threw it to somebody on the start line, and and it was the first time for a long time I'd run without a watch. <laughs> what year is this, Barcelona? Um, 92, 1992. And you're running. How do you feel? At the um, start running. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're just sort of like in with the crowd, just sort of trying to get your rhythm because you've got all these other people with their different paces and different strides and all the rest. So, you know, um, and I had a sort of a fairly long sort of lopy stride. So I always had to be careful I didn't get, you know, sort of tied up in other people's feet. Or Did you have a plan? No, I just uh, stuck in there. But um, what I had practiced with myself, so I thought of like uh, these mental strategies so that I didn't get caught in the um, the soul experience of mm. feeling too pressured and then sort of blowing the race because I wasn't, it took my focus. Right? So um, in every race, and especially in the marathon, you know, you've got to have this squared away. Because it can do a number on you, you know, and, and you can start to, you know, as soon as you start running negative thoughts, your body feels it and it's instantly translated. And next thing you're sort of like going back or you're tensing up or you lose your flow. So um, I knew that, I mean, everybody has those moments. You start to, you're, you're looking and you're going, oh, well, um, am I? 
uh, can I keep this up or is it, you know, um, is it too hot or, you know, and, and you start sort of scanning for the negatives and uh, then you start to feel like, oh, maybe I need to drop back or you you start to struggle a little bit. And I went, okay, whenever I have one of those moments, I made a pact with myself. And that was if I felt like dropping back or dropping out, I was going to run to the front first of all. So I wasn't allowed to drop out from the back. I'd have to run to the front. And then drop out. Yeah. And then so, and then I then I told myself, then I can drop out when I was in the front. So but you if know. you're at the front, you don't want to drop out. Yeah, you get to the yeah. front, and you go, wow, I'm winning the Olympics, you know, and you get this little I'm boost. On TV. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It gives you such a, you know, there's Isn't nothing. Like funny? The what a, like what a such funny a story. What a funny yeah. story. I so I did that about... quite a few times. No, you know? no. I did. Yeah, yeah, I did it. You'll see me. I ran to the front and, and then that's I hilarious. Back again. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to drop out. Oh, well, I'll just run out to the front. Oh, I'm out the front. Oh, this is so great. And you did that. Yes. Yes. My goodness. I, I you know what so I've just, fun, you know, like, you know you what know, I've just really... realized is I probably was as nervous about this interview as you were going to Barcelona. Um, and you're such a great conversationalist and human being that I'm just chatting away to you like you're my next door neighbor. So thank you for that. It's going so well for me. Yeah, I'm enjoying it too, Rodney. I'm not feeling intimidated, Lorraine. And I should say to everyone, you're on Reality Check Radio, and it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got a very special guest, Lorraine Moller, wonderful human being, and fantastic athlete and competitor. And ostensibly, we're talking about women in sport, which we'll get to. But to understand about women in sport, we've got to try, I think, and understand sport and what it meant to Lorraine. So we're at Barcelona Olympics. Can you imagine it? We're talking to a person that ran in the Barcelona Olympics in the marathon, and she had a strategy. I just can't get over this. I'm not going to drop out unless I'm at the front. And... She did that several times, and she gets to the front, and she says, I'm not dropping out. I'm winning on the Olympics. Oh, my God, Lorraine. That is sort of like so prosaic and so wonderful that you did that. You got to the front. I'm not dropping out, and I'm keeping going. Not once, but several times. Tell us about the rest of the run. Well, we got to about halfway point, and then um, a Russian woman took off for the front, and that meant that the gauntlet was put down, and suddenly the pack started to break apart. And you people either had to stick with pace. her or drop back. Right. And presumably anyone in that field could have stuck with her a little while, but they're making a calculation. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could stick with her for that long. And you're thinking she might burn out. You don't know. You don't know. So it's a yeah. big decision to make, isn't 
but the pace was pretty pedestrian. Okay. So it was kind of expected. And so next thing, I'm in the chase group. Wow. And we're chasing her. And we get to 16 miles. What made you decide to chase her? Well, because I wanted to win. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good reason. (laughs) But you thought, you didn't think, because you knew that if the gap opened up, it could be hard to close. Yes. So you thought, I've got to stick in the front pack if I want to win. Yes. Whatever they're doing, I've got to match. I get yeah, it. you've got to cover the move at least. So yes. so she was, she'd, you know, take a, taken off. And then there was a group of us and we were going down Los Ramblers, which is a very famous street in Barcelona at 16 miles. And there was me and East German and a few Japanese and and I was sort of at the front of this little chase pack, sort of dragging them along. And um, the Japanese runner went in front of me, and that put me in third place. And um, and that was it. Now, in every race like that, there is a point where I call it the crunch point, but it's really where you make a decision of between success and failure. And we usually have very good reasons for both. Um, Unless, uh, you know, um, but it's like um, the, for me, there was a real war that started on in my little head. And it was like I had the angel and the devil sitting on each ear. Telling me, like, you know, shall I go or shall I stick back, you know? And, and it's only you. And it's only me. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you're running at pace. I'm running at pace and I'm going, okay, do I do I go? Because this Japanese runner was moving ahead of me. Do I go with her and give chase um, at this moment? And this voice said to me, Lorraine, what do you think you're doing? Well, I'm trying to win the Olympics, you know. (laughs) And this voice said, well, you know, it's 16 miles and you've still got 10 miles to go. So, you know, be careful what you're doing. And I go, but if I don't cover that, um, I won't win. And this voice said, yeah, but, you know, you've got to remember it's really, really hot. And there's still 10 miles. and." I, and then I countered with, well, um, I, I haven't felt the heat. I really haven't given a thought to the heat. And the voice said, yeah, but now it starts to go uphill and you're not a very good uphill runner. And I go, yeah, well, that's probably true. Um, and the voice said, you know, you should slow down. You know, you're you're in third place. And that's pretty good for you. And you don't want to blow it. And I went, oh, yeah, I don't want to blow it. And so at that point, I slowed down. I did not give chase. I did not go with the Japanese runner. And that sort of consolidated the positions with the Russian woman in front, the Japanese runner next, and me. And we sort of ran in those positions 
all the way up the hill and into the stadium. Extraordinary. And that was pretty incredible. I, I can even say, Rodney, I, you know, it, um, it was it was night, and so we'd started in the daylight, but we'd run into night, which was pretty neat um, with this changing sort of scenery and um, and up the hill, and then you go through a tunnel into the stadium, and then you burst out into the stadium, and there's just there were 80,000 people in the stands cheering. It was absolutely phenomenal. It was like absolutely, it was chilling because here I was and these people were cheering for me. Which you love. Who wouldn't? Oh, it was just like, wow, this is just like the most extraordinary feeling to really like be at the center of such um wonderful attention and um and we were cheering and you were cheering i mean I was it, cheering. It, it, it reverberates out right to everybody I was cheering. the tv set yeah and you'd come back from 33rd to 3rd yeah at 37 at 37 a woman running the marathon Did your dad see that? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was still alive. Oh, my God. And you ran that lap around the stadium all the way from Pataro and those trees mm -hmm. to get third. What was it like standing on the podium? Oh, that was lovely. That happened um, a few days later. Oh, really? Yeah. So they didn't do it that night because um, it was quite late. And uh, first of all, you have to go and do a drug test. Yes. That means you've got to go pee in a cup. Yes. And, um, you know, after you've done 26 miles and that heat, <laughs> Getting a pee out wasn't easy. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a marathon in itself, you know. <laughs> waiting and um, waiting, dehydrated. Yeah. But you so did the, it. Yeah. And I, and I can remember um, finally about midnight, I got back to the village and I was back in my bed in the village and I just lay there like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, like it's the highest of highs, right? You never. It was. Happy. It was like for me because I've won many big races, but this was the Olympics. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. And um, absolutely. and I was, um, I was just, I was like, I felt like I'd flown to heaven. You know, it was. What would have meant to you if you got fourth? Oh. Yeah, well, I, I I always reserved fifth for me. <laughs> I had plenty of fifths. <laughs> I didn't I didn't go fourth um, because I, that seemed to me too disappointing. Yes, you know, but fifth is sort of like a oh good show, you know. But, but fourth is like oh yeah. So just, if you were lying in your bed that night, yes, and you got a fourth, you would have felt different. I would have, yeah. 
yeah. Funny, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of like there's that dividing line. You know, you can be an Olympian, right? Or an Olympic. Be a, a Commonwealth Games, and then the next tier up is to be in the Olympics. And then to really make it into that group, you get on the podium. And I'd made it into that group. At 37. At 37. So you'd been running a long time. Since I was 14. Yeah. My arithmetic says 23 years of running. Something like that. Yeah. Wasn't your last Olympic? Wasn't your last rodeo? No, it wasn't. No. Where was the next Olympics? So the next one was in Atlanta. And I, you know, after the Olympics, after uh, Barcelona, um, I started to think about it. And then I started recalling this little, these voices in my head. And I went, what if? What if I had hadn't listened to that voice? What if I'd just gone for it? And it haunted me. It haunted me so much that I went, I've got to go back and have another go. Because if forty one was it? And I went, you know, if and if they think I'm old, you know, this defiance of me. If they think I'm old at thirty seven, well, I'll be even older at forty one. You know, <laughs> had you go. Um, well, uh, what was I, maybe 45th or something in the end? Did you enjoy it? Uh, you know, it was probably my most extraordinary Olympics because it took me to the end of that story for me. My story as an athlete. Um, so I'll just, uh, so what I decided was, um, the year before, I didn't want to go to Atlanta. It didn't inspire me the way that Barcelona did and go over the course and all that kind of stuff. Um, I decided that what I needed to do was go get some more inspiration. And uh, so I decided, okay, what's the most inspiring thing that I can think of to do? And I thought, oh, I have to go to Greece. i got to go to Greece to the birthplace of the Olympics. And the marathon. Yeah. And and make this connection with myself as an Olympian and find out what that's all about. So um, it was April. I'd qualified in the Boston Marathon for this race. And um, and I and Dick says, okay, now we've got to get, you know, we've got to get on the program to get ready for Atlanta. And I said, no, no, Dick, I'm I'm going to Greece. And he says, but you don't have time. You've got to train. I said, no, no. I got to do this. I'm going to Greece. So I took this time and I I took off to Greece and um I had this little itinerary um which included going to Olympia where the Olympics all started. Um and finding out that actually um women were not women had their own games. Mm. They were just different. I didn't so, know they had games. Oh wow. Yeah, they had the Olympics. So, like, Olympics were from Olympia. So, they also had other games around mm. in the different cities. So, they had the Olympic Games in Olympia. They had the Nemean Games in Nemea um, and so forth. 
Um, and the men's games were held in honour of Zeus. Mm. The women's games were um, called the Heraic Games, and they had a series of competitions that were in honour of the goddess Hera, the counterpart of Zeus, so the feminine mm. counterpart. So, um, but, um, you know, you they would they would never have thought of mixing the men and women in the same games or, or in the same events. It just wouldn't be done. Um, but what's interesting about that, Rodney, is that um, it seems that it is the basis for what the Americans have as the homecoming queen and king. So they would have the rugby star and then the best cheerleader, right? And, and then they would be sort of crowned nice. as the king and queen. And uh, that's essentially what they did from the uh, from these ancient Olympics was that the winner of the, say, Olympic Games and the winner of the Heroic Games, so the, the top man and the top woman, would then be paired together and they would have that genetic superiority to pass on to the next generations. What an amazing thing. And you think, what was this, two and a half thousand years ago, maybe, I'm guessing, the Olympics, Olympia, the golden age of Greece, where they built astounding buildings, invented democracy, had citizens fight Persians, Spartans, and win where they develop philosophy and science, democracy. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And they absolutely adored sport. Well, you know, I went to the um, sacred site of Delphi. Yes. And that's on a hillside in this um, little village. Um, and it is has all these temples. So the temples, you know, you go up a path and you go to one temple, you go to the next temple and the next temple and the next temple. And you go up the hillside. Guess what's at the very top? I have no clue. It's the stadium. Oh, wow. The stadium where they had their competition, and because the athletic, the ath yes, because the athlete, the athlete who had honed their body and um, honoured their body and gotten to peak physical fitness was the closest that the Greeks considered that a man could be, be to a god. Yes, I get that for them. And we sort of joke about it, but they competed naked. Yes. But that was an admiration of the physical prowess mm -hmm. of this godlike body, bodies. And they were so well, to use the vernacular onto it, they were so amazing. Oh, 
afflicted had slaves and all the rest of it that people complain about, but for the time, just an amazing people mm -hmm. that gave us so much of our modern world. When the founding fathers were founding America, it was to the Greeks they looked. Mm -hmm. And you were there realizing this long human civilization and what it means to be an Olympian close to the gods. Yes. So, which I believe is true. And at the um, in this at this uh, Olympic site in Olympia, they have the, they were the athletes would all be housed there, and they would be schooled in you know astronomy and mathematics mm. and you know um, the arts and all the rest, as well as do their physical training. So there wasn't the sort of mind body split that we have no. now. It they was. All yeah, um, the all around, all around human being, um, and when you go from the um, gymnasium along the path to the athletic track, um, they have these statues along the way, and the statues are called zanes, and the zanes are or erected from levies from the towns where the athlete would come from, and they would be erected if a person cheated or got caught cheating in any way. So then they would erect a statue to them, which they find the town for, they had to pay for. And it was a reminder as you walked towards the stadium that if you did not play honorably, that you would be immortalized with this. It's like a, a, this hall of shame, you know. Wow. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Wow. So I, I think we should bring back the Zanes, actually. Yes, none of that I knew. How wonderful. Um, so when you went to Atlanta, you weren't just thinking back the decades of the modern Olympics. You were reaching back to the birthplace of civilized life. Yes. So there was one more thing I did, Rodney, please, in please. Greece. I went, okay, I'm 41, and I was really starting to feel like I was overtrained and a bit please. burned out. And I knew I had to have something extra, so I devised this plan. <laughs> I'm going to love this. <laughs> I know you're going to love it. I'm going to love it. I decided I had to go. Come in, listeners. And petition the head Olympian, which is Zeus. Right. So, you know, Zeus is the head Olympian, and all the Olympians live on the top of Mount Olympus. And so I went, okay, I'm going to go to the top of Mount Olympus and I'm going to go have a talk with Zeus. Wonderful. Okay, because, you know, I thought, well, 
if you want some somebody to do you a favor, you go to the head guy. Head guy. No, so it just goes straight to the top. And there's none more top than Zeus. Yeah, that's right. So um so I drive drove to um Mount Olympus and I drove up to a trailhead, and this is April there. And um I, I put on a little backpack and I was just in my my shorts and top and um I ran up this trailhead as far as I could go until I got um it was there was snow so it was up pretty high and I was above tree line and um I was getting towards the top of the mountain but there was this vast rocky expanse and it was all just covered in the snow and um, I went, okay, this this is good. Um, I'm on Zeus's beard. Yeah, this big white expanse. So um, I found myself a rock and I um, stood on this rock and I had this petition that I'd made and I also had a medal that I'd made. It was a, a wooden medal. It was a gold medal and it had... Um, my picture on it, and it had the date of the Atlanta Olympics, etc. And um, and so I stood up there, and and I started to talk to Zeus. I went, no, 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 this isn't quite good enough. So um, I got down off the rock. I took off all my clothes, so I was um, so I was stark naked, and um, and I stood back up on this rock. And um, and I made my petition to Zeus, and I said something like this: "Oh, great and mighty Zeus, I come to you. I am Lorraine, Mary Moller, a mere mortal from Patararu, New Zealand, and I humbly ask you that I have the Olympics coming up, and I am asking you if you will help me." To win the gold, and um, then I got down off the rock, and I got my medal and my petition, and I buried them. I dug a little hole and I buried them underneath there, and then um, I put my clothes on because I was starting to get cold, <laughs> <laughs> and I started off down the track, and I got like, oh. 100 metres or so, and I went, no, 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 that's not good enough. And uh, so I turned around and I went back to the rock where I was and I said, I need a sign. I have to have a sign. You know, I, I just needed to know if I was just being absolutely ridiculous, you know, or or if this, or if there was something real about it for me. And uh, So I asked for the sign. And out of this clear blue sky, came a roll of thunder. No way. Yeah. And uh, I can feel it now. The um, oh, the hairs of my arms stood my up. And I was like, oh, that's it. Um, because, you know, Zeus is the god of the thunderbolt. Yes. And, um, and then it was, and I, I, I jumped. I, I jumped out of my skin and I started looking. I went, oh, did a... Did a jet come over or something like I was? I, I couldn't really sort of like quite compute, and that it happened so on cue, and and it was almost like, 
oh, you stupid woman. And there was another bowl of thunder. So, and I went, that's it, that's it. I've got it, I've got it. I was so excited. And I ran down that mountain and I came back and I went to, I was back in Boulder and I was training and I, I was like um, so, so excited um, because I knew that Zeus had heard my plea and um, that I was I was so convinced I was going to win the gold. I was absolutely just knew it. Anyway, um, the morning of the race, um, my training was not going that well. And I, I, but I stood on the start line. I, don't, I go, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I know I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to pull this off. And I was thinking, you know, maybe, um, you know, there'll be a flash flood in the middle of the race and anybody who's in front of me will get behind you, right? I just know there'll be some act of God, you know, <laughs> that was going to happen. Where's your thunder now, Zuzi? <laughs> yeah. Put a bit and, of water down. Uh, you know, I had this magic water from Delphi and I had this um, uh, oil, olive oil from Zeus's Grove and I had that all smeared over my body and, <laughs> you know, all my magical things I'm on the start line and, you know. And Don't I'll worry, be, I've got this done. Mm. Yeah, and, um, you know, we're going up and down these great big hills in Atlanta and it's hot again, you know, all the rest, all this stuff. And, um and I'm getting to halfway and I'm like middle of the pack. And I'm going, geez, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not even up there. I'd have to really like, you know, move through the pack and get it's up the front. I'm going to stand a show. And um, and there was uh, a, that point at halfway where we we came along and we had to do a turn around a mark and come back. So that the runners in front, you know, you were passing the runners who had already yeah. made, so you could see how far the other runners were in front yeah. of you. I, that could I, be I'm going, right? you know, that they are, um, you know, I, I, I realized I wasn't going to win anything that day. And, um, and as I'm looking, I see out the front this African woman, Fatuma Roba, Ethiopian. And she's striding out with this beautiful free stride. And, you know, and I looked at her and I went, you know, she's going to win that today. And she she looks so beautiful. And I went, you know, African women weren't even running when I started. There were there weren't third world women weren't, there were no events. They, they didn't even compete. And here she is, she's going to win it. And she reminded me of my you know, 14-year-old self, just yes. that freedom in her stride. And um, so and what were, was... Sorry. Oh, yeah, I know. You, you, you're right with me there. Um, it was the first time in a race that I had ever admired another runner. It was... And it was looking at her, and then behind her, there were all my seasoned competitors, you know, the Japanese woman, the East German woman, the um, the Russian, you know, the ones that were duking it out for, um, you know, second and third, and uh, highly trained and really focused and just giving it all grit, you know. 
Um, and I looked at them and I saw myself in every one of those runners. And and I went, look at them, you know, look at them just giving it everything they've got to get themselves a medal. And then I thought to myself, you know, you've already got one. You've got yourself a medal. And I had never appreciated that from myself up to that point. I had always thought that what I did wasn't good enough. And I realized that this was it. This was the last race I was going to run, that the Olympics was, it was the end. I'd come to the end of that road and and it was okay. It was good. It, it was, was good. It was peace. And um and I finished the race. Um my fourth Olympics. I was the oldest runner in the race at age 41. Um and I thought about it and I said, Did Zeus let me down? And I went, no. Because I got my gold, in, but it wasn't the way that I thought it was going to be. It was that I had finally come to a point of self-acceptance and um, appreciation for all that, all that work, that whole journey, you know. I think when... We come to the blending of when the the um, the act and the person acting become one. Yes. It's a, it's extraordinary time, and for me to have that happen in the middle of the Olympics, you know, was really like truly in the realm of Zeus and being given a very special gift. A very special gift because. I can imagine for an athlete, it's very hard to get closure. And you had a beautiful closure because you saw an African woman, not just a woman, but an African woman out front, unheard of. And you didn't say, buddy, but she's beating me. You looked at her and thought, that is magnificent and beautiful. And you saw the woman competing for second and third. And you were at peace with that. So I see what you're saying. It's the 14-year-old girl and the full circle mm -hmm. where you could pass the baton on, accept 
that you're in the Olympics, but your time of the Olympics was at an end. And these wonderful people were going to win. And like you, inspire a whole next generation of people, not just runners, but people like me. That's amazing that you had that opportunity in sport to get that full completion and to end at peace with yourself, not, ah, oh, I didn't I made it my last run. No, Zeus spoke to you, all right. And, and I so think, yeah, you would have gone home that night, not with that elation of Barcelona, but with a, a fulfillment and a contentment because you could retire from the Olympics feeling fulfilled mm-hmm. without un, unmet, unmet ambitions. What a wonderful story, Lorraine. Well, you've worked hard, but you know how to count your blessings, don't you? Well, I think that's one of the secrets to being able to come to a resolution is to learn to count our blessings. And um, I'm really grateful for that whole running experience it, it seems like you know it's another life another it's another life for me and um but it was extraordinary and the places that i went and the people that i met and the experiences that i had and the um widening of the aperture mm. so that i could understand my world better But it's understandable in a way, I'm just thinking out loud, that the Olympics is so intense and everything of you is coming together. Your fitness, your physical prowess, your mental training, everything is lined up to hit that point emotionally and surrounded by thousands of others who are also hitting their peak. So however you dice and slice it, that moment in the Olympic sun is a very, very intense experience like nothing else. Mm-hmm. It's the pinnacle. And you have to get to a point where you can climb off it. Mm-hmm. Which I think for people, sports people, can be hard because the nature of sport is you're successful when you're young. And then you've got the rest of your life, mm-hmm. which you can see for a lot of all blacks is difficult because they're always just, they're always an all black. 
but they're no longer in all black, if you know what I mean? Yeah. And you were a great runner, an Olympian runner, but then you're no longer an Olympic runner, yet everyone still sees you as this Olympic runner, but you're also Lorraine Muller, who's doing all these things, right? Mm-hmm. That I would find that a bit tough because, like, hey, I'm me too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm this wonderful person, and you are a wonderful person. You know, a wonderful person because you're an Olympian. But you're an Olympian with insight and emotion and understanding. This that moment, that's the best part of the story. The seeing that African woman. Mm-hmm. And that it was that run that you got to see them turn around and you got to see the lady out front. Oh, my goodness. How awe-inspiring, right? We've got to somehow, and maybe it's perfect, do a transition. Because through you, we saw what it is to be a champion. We saw what it is to be the best in the world, to strive. And here today, we've had a wee sneak into what it felt like. And in a little way, we've lived it with you. We didn't do the years. And so we've just touched on it and sort of reached out and felt it a little bit. And it's magnificent, much more than just watching you run. And now they say boys can be girls, men can be women, and they can compete. The Greeks wouldn't have had a power of it. What is going on? I think uh, with uh, this world that we're in, we're also engaged in a story. And mm-hmm. we're all playing our part in in this moving stage and, you know, we've all probably uh, reeling from the events of three years ago and going, what on earth is going on? Um, And uh, I think that in the story of humankind that we are all a part of, um, we are at the point where we are, what I call the crunch point in the race, right? Where we now have to decide and are we going to break through and embrace a bigger version of ourselves or are we going to play small? In the classic uh, Joseph Campbell Hero's Journey um, uh, model, um, when you play small, when you don't heed the call or you don't um, rise with courage to what you're called forth to do, um, it's actually far more perilous uh, because you you die. It's a part of you that just dies to be able to stay in that small space. And I think humankind at the moment is at a threshold and 
we now are called to embrace a bigger version of self. And that bigger version of self is to uh, to uh, learn from, but we need to plow under this old version of uh, materiality and um, uh, power and money and uh, always having more um, and uh, and being so identified with the self um, and not um, having or realizing that we're all part of one big organism mm-hmm. and that um, our next development is uh, to recognize our spiritual nature mm. and to bring that forth. We're going to build a new world, but what it requires is courage and <clears throat> for courage to uh, and for us to learn, we need to, um, it's like having a good rival. You know, there's, there's so um, what the story will throw up to you, first of all, is the false version. Yes. And um and it'll say, go for this idea, go for this idea. And um, but it, it's it's like a program, and maybe it is a, a an AI or something like that that is programmed to be self-sustaining. But the only way it can self-sustain is by having you feed your energy in to it um rather than into your own your uh what is your um in your heart and mind. Because it's bigger than men and women's sport, isn't it? Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I would never have seen that um, this whole um, woke ideology no. that um, is so destructive and would ask young people to give up their um, creativity or their ability to um, uh you know, have children, which is the greatest, I think, um, gift that we are given is um, being able to procreate. And, um, you know, after my uh, Atlanta journey, I retired from sport and I became a mom at age 45. And, um, and that was another thing. They said, oh, no, you're too old and, you know, all this sort of rubbish and, you know, you're going to have a Down syndrome baby and blah, 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 blah. And, I, um, um, and I just went, you know, my chances of having a, a healthy child are, are less than that of winning a medal in the Olympics. So, you know, um, so, you know, it was just my, it was in my heart and mind to do. And I did, I had a, a, I've got a beautiful daughter. Um, And so, um, but that next um, evolution for me, that next stage from going from being the athlete, I had to give up the athlete to be able to go into the mother. Mm. Um, it was just that my body needed to be appropriated for something else. I mean, it was great that I was so fit. Um, but um, that, I think, is a really powerful thing for human beings because when you're a parent, 
Everything um, changes. Everything changes. It's for me, it was the most powerful initiation of of the heart, opening up the heart. Mm. I mean, I was just so open. I felt everything very intensely and um and to experience another human being as mm. one with you. Mm. Um to the extent that a mother can, I'm, I'm really lucky that I was. Well, was... mothers are different too, because I find, like, I love little babies, but not like a, I mean, to have, to be a mother, oh my goodness, and hold that baby. Like a man doesn't feel that the same. There's, yeah, I can't imagine it. And there's nothing more beautiful. And then men sort of come into their own a bit when they, they say when they can catch a ball. But, you know, when they become a bit older and the man starts play, I find playing a role with the kids. But that first little baby, because it's yours, right? It came yeah. from you. Yeah, it is. It's a it beautiful, is. and that is a human being who you made, and is a little bit of you, but is also their own self. That's the other great bit. If they were yeah. just a little clone, it would be terrible. Uh, a little bit of their dad, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of you, a little bit of their dad, and a little bit of themselves, because there are genes in there that aren't expressed in either of you. Mm-hmm. And so they are their own self, and mm-hmm. you watch them unfold in front of you, and it's wonderful. And yet here we are, and I'm just trying to pick up what you're saying. Here we are. Yeah feeling bewildered, disoriented, challenged, every which way we look, and you feel, I don't know if I'm speaking for you, that Western civilization is at a crisis point. Mm -hmm. That we either decide to stick up for these values, or lose them. And what you're saying is, we're not talking about Western civilization going back, but building on it for something new and even better, like happens mm. whenever we are challenged. Yes. I also get you, I think, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, so I'm happy for you to correct me, but I was listening very intently. And I'm finding this. I've never been a spiritual person in my life, ever. I went to Sunday school and I sat there and it meant absolutely nothing to me. Ah, the singing was nice and the stained glass was nice and a little bit of the pomp and ceremony was nice. But I didn't feel spiritually moved. But I do now. And I feel as though I have seen evil. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking, I've never seen evil before. In history, I have. But I feel I'm seeing evil manifest itself, which is a spiritual idea to me. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's evil, there has to be good. And I'm now, I realize that 
the arguments to be had about our future and our life and how we interact with each other and treat each other and treat our children is a question now, not of what's the best way or what works. It's actually a question of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Which is something I'd never even contemplated because I couldn't think of anyone wishing evil. But I see these lovely, lovely people who just do the women's sport thing. These lovely, lovely people sitting in the Ministry of Education, writing the curriculum and writing how to teach my little girls about health, sexuality, writing about sport and what it is. And these wonderful, wonderful, caring teachers teaching them. And as nice as they are and as nice as I am to them, I regard what they're doing to my children as evil. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know how to talk to the teacher because I'm expecting to be pulled into the principal's office some stage. And I worry that I might go off. Mm-hmm. I'm so angry over it. I've got my little girls, young and innocent, as all little young girls should be, at 12 and 10, being constantly harangued about gender ideology being sexualized by gender ideology. So sex is an everyday topic of conversation from the teachers under the banner of pride, which I think is a sin, and inclusivity and diversity and caring. I see my little girls being confused because they look up to their teachers as the source of knowledge and learning. But what their teachers are saying appears to them to be nonsense. And their mum and dad says it's completely barking mad. <laughs> so they've got that struggle. Um... I worry about that little girl running through the forest right now, age 14. She got a future in sport? Because at 18, there will be a boy lining up against her to beat her. So how can your dad encourage that young 14-year-old to continue in the sport when it's being, well, it's not systematic, it's been destroyed. Mm -hmm. It it will destroy sport for girls. And, you know, um, I was involved in a part of a government survey when they were first talking about um, including transgender people in sports, which mostly affects 
the woman. And um, and the, it became apparent to me when we were doing the survey that it was already a foregone conclusion and that they were just going through the motions to say that they had talked to people like me and got our input. But really what I said made no difference because they had already decided. And I think these uh, ideas that are thrust upon people that come from a very few really high up that have worked themselves into um, uh, such a position of influence and power that they think they can direct the consciousness of human beings into programs that um, uh, serve them but no longer serve humankind. And they and, used you. Yes, and that is, yes, and that that is, um, that is an evil agenda. I really think it is because they have billions of dollars in marketing and they know how to capture the human mind yes. and to have you think in their way of thinking. So just like, um, so sport was because I'd go, why, why would they want to do this? Why? Why? When you've got maybe 0.05 people that identify yeah. as trans. Yeah. And yet you've got 50% of the population, which are young women, that need nurturing at that age because half of them will give up sport altogether if they're not nurtured and encouraged through that, through their puberty yeah. time. Um, the other thing is that, you know, that because of that um, time, now I know when I was 14 and I started to have my period and I wanted to be a, an athlete and I got anemic and then I hated my body and, you know, it's not fair, why couldn't I be a boy, all those kinds of things. And if I had an adult at that stage had said to me, well, maybe you are a boy. You would have said. I might have considered the idea. Yes, because you you're know, very suggestible. It, Yes, because um, and yet instead, I had somebody who whispered in my ear and said, "You will go to the Olympics." What a difference, you know, that we as adults have that capacity to direct a person into um, their next version of reality for them, mm. and we can make that something that's wonderful, or we can help them to. Um, direct them into something that's wonderful or something that is absolute hell and to um, tell a, a person that they're born in the wrong body oh my it's God. the most absurd idea that's you can't be born in the wrong body it's impossible the body you can't <laughs> you know you, and you can't change it any more than you could paint stripes on a zebra and call it a, a, a on a donkey and call it a zebra it just you know it's just ridiculous and yet we have people at the very top that are um weaving this kind of spell like they they must be laughing they must go how stupid people are that they would actually well, go for this stuff. I know it's this huge 
as you say, psychological operation. And I'm looking at my kids' teachers who are spouting this stuff, who are genuinely spouting it. They're not saying, oh, I've got to do this because, you know, the government says. No, they're on board with it. And I regard it as serious, serious child abuse. My kids are still going out into the world, going to school. But I regard them as entering a toxic environment. And I'm doing my best to protect them from the environment that they're being subjected to. And when I say toxic, it's toxic in a way that says, oh, that boy over there, he's now a girl. That's happened in my kids' year. Mm -hmm. You are bad because you're white. You did terrible things. Over here, you're oppressed. And over there are the oppressors. And don't worry, the world's all going to end because your dad drives a car and eats meat. This is, and then they wonder why there's mental health problems in young kids. Mm -hmm. And, oh, they need some drugs, medication. We can see it. My dear mum, who died last year, could see it. And yet it's happening. Um, I don't know what to do, Lorraine. You know, I, I really believe that and it's taken me a long time, and it's actually through teaching the training that um, everything is set up in our favor. And this whole thing is rolling out um, for our learning. And the only way we learn is through experience. Mm. Um, because otherwise it's just an idea in the mind, but we are to bring these um uh our our inspired ideas, inspired as coming from spirit ideas, and to manifest them in this realm through our own particular what we love. Mm. And um, and I think that, well, let me just back up and tell you just a basic thing about training that I learned through this Lydia training. When we train, we apply a training stimulus. So you you go, you do a workout, you have a run, and, and you know, you have and pop and all the rest. And what happens is you're getting a breakdown 
of all these energy bonds from the, um, you know, uh, nutrition in your body and your bloodstream to give you energy so you can move. Okay. As soon as you finish, your body goes into a restoration period and it rebuilds it. And so that's how we train. We do the, you know, the um, breaking down the bonds and then resting and building it up. It's it's like. Um, and the recovery and restoration mm-hmm. is what makes you fitter and stronger. And well, that follows yes. the stress, is it? So what will happen in the period after you have done the run, when you're just taking it, when you're relaxing, the body rebuilds. And it will come back to the level it was before, but it doesn't only come back to the level it it was at before. It goes one better. It gives you more than what you had. Mm. So you you improve. That's where you get the improvement because the body super compensates. Mother nature gives you more than what you had before, Mm. but you have to put in the initial work. Mm -hmm. And then the rewards are more than what you put out. Mm-hmm. So it sort of compounds, which is that. wonderful. So that so I looked at this and I looked at it and I looked at it and I looked at it. And I I had always come from a point of view that um somehow um life is tough and I've got to sort of like push against it all the time. So, you know, I had that very athletic mentality, you know, Mm -hmm. you just sort of keep going at it and keep going at it and keep going at it until finally, you know, you bust through. But, you know, a bit of an old goat mentality, you know, Mm -hmm. and and kept me going for a long, long time. Um, um, But now um, I, I see that, gosh, I could just relax more. Um, because, and have the faith that everything is working its way out. I don't think that a lie can, um, it can't uh, perpetuate for too long. Yes. Um, because it's a lie. It It, it is out of kilter with the, the harmony of the whole thing. And mm. it... Uh, what is the strongest field in the human being? It's the heart field, right? The 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 um, energy that we put out from the heart. If you measured an ECG, uh, electrocardiogram, as opposed to an EEG, this is a much weaker signal. This is about sixty to hundred times stronger. Wow! And it, it's our heart energy that um, um, that. Uh, uh, goes out and um, and is uh, well. It it's like life is a mirror, and what we put out, then we um, it organizes our reality for us, and we step in and we experience this as a story, right? Um, and the there's two forces, and one is um, that um, mind energy that cuts things down and we identify with certain things and um and it separates it separates us it's it's i am me and i have a name and i do this and and so i have all these definitions about who i think i am and and that makes me separate from you um but the heart field tells a different story 
like the mother with the child. You're one. There is no separation. You mm-hmm. feel it. You know, so we have um, the the light of God that separates everything out so we can experience things. And then we have the love which brings everything back together. And that's this pulse that we are engaging in. And we're in this reality and we're on the we're on the light and we have this huge stage that we build with this incredible story. And you can call it, you know, um, the story from Genesis to Exodus and the the free of the knowledge of good and evil, whatever you like, right? But but we are engaged in this story. And that's Um, and it's true. And it's true. It's true. The story is true. And yes, it might come from Zeus, it might come from God, yeah. might come from Jesus. Yes. But that story survives because it's true. And you and I are here talking, never met. You're in Boulder, Colorado, I'm in Arrowtown. And yet here we are connecting quite deeply, actually, about our thoughts and our lives with people listening. Even more amazing. You know, Rodney, I've been all over the world and I've been in many different countries and different cultures, third world countries and Muslim countries and all the rest. And... When you talk to individuals, the one thing that we all have in common is that we love our families mm. and we want, we would do anything to give our kids anything. a good life, you know. Anything. That is such a pay it forward, um, such a strong sentiment that um, I think. Uh, we don't have to worry. It's inbuilt. It's in us. Love of a baby, love of your family, love of your husband, your wife, your children, your mum and dad, that connection flowing through from your mum and dad to your children. That's um, your community, your neighbourhood. That connection you can see in a heartbeat. And same in New Zealand, of course, we're having this racial divide be created, which doesn't exist until Mm. it's created. Lorraine, I have almost, I feel, abused the privilege of interviewing you because um, I was, like I said, very nervous about interviewing you you're so wonderful and I've had you it's been a Joe Rogan like interview where it's gone on and on and on but you have given us an amazing gift today because all of us listening now have been to Barcelona and had a sense of running in the Olympics And being close to the gods as a human can get and standing on the podium 
and that feeling afterwards. And we've been to Barcelona and handed on the baton and seen magnificence and been happy with that. But then we have had the picture of what you've lived for, woman's sport, and it's who you are. Come under massive attack to be destroyed. Just unfathomable. But we didn't talk about it in terms of then the committee said this and they got a report done and they did this and this is the rule in the UK now and this is the rules in New Zealand, which is what I expected to do because <laughs> I'm interested in that. Mm -hmm. But you shared with us a deeper understanding of because it's not what the rules are, it is actually what's happening. This deep attack and bewilderment that we feel through these last little while, and we can sort of grimly see something's not right. And then I can easily end up going through that pretty glum and without hope. But then, through Arthur Lydiard's training and understanding, which we take, we know is real because you did it, it's suddenly this new insight that we're being stressed. Previously, we were just sitting in the armchair watching Netflix with popcorn feeling comfortable, but now we've been stressed, being pushed, and we're resting and we're coming back strong and we'll be stressed again. And we're going to come back stronger and better people with a stronger and better society and stronger and better sport. Sport will get better from yes. the stress. I can see that now. You know, being in the US, um, it's yeah, sort of such a hotbed of this whole battle. And uh, yes. and the US is not maybe like such a pushover like um, no. New Zealand, Australia, you know, Canada especially. Um, and um, because it has the constitution is the supreme law of the land. Um, and so that's a hard one to get around. Um, and and there's pushback on both sides. I mean, really like, you know, it's it's really a hotbed. Um, but um, and it's diverse. It's and, diverse, yeah. And strong. It's incredibly and, and, strong. Yeah. And so it's pretty amazing to watch what's going on. And um, we have seen um, it's certainly this agenda that they're trying to push and um, and I think have uh, pretty much commandeered all the mainstream press. So they give us a view 
that I think is a distorted view, and they tell us things that simply aren't true. But it's to get us thinking in a certain direction or believing. And, you know, this idea of belief, a belief, as I said, is a tool. It is not reality itself. However, the way that beliefs are set up is that um, we they are they are self-perpetuating and we actually have a dopamine reward system so that when our belief is proven to us to be true, we get a hit of dopamine and then that strengthens that belief in it. And uh, so that is how um, that mechanism is used to capture our minds to believe certain things that aren't true and then we get rewarded and it gets reinforced and people say things over and over and over and repeat them if you're watching uh, mainstream news. Um, so uh, it's so important for um, people to get out and be active in nature because that's the big reset. Mm. The um, The phone, the computer is um, often the information that's giving. It's somebody else's idea about reality that's, right. that's it's... being driven into the brain. Um, and uh, so, um, but we will reset to what is inherently natural within us because that is the strongest signal. We will reset to it if we just give ourselves a chance. So we, what do we need? We need... Um, to be out, um, uh, to get our feet on the ground, to get sunlight in our eyes, um, and uh, to go for a walk, move, to move, yeah, do to the gardening, move. yeah, um, so Clean up the neighborhood, it's all, yeah, it, it, go for a run, and, and it just run. resets everything. The whole world seems different, can you know? I do a walk? You can do a walk. Yes. Thank you, right? I'm going to tell my. I can do a walk. Um, my walking is your running, um, Lorraine. Thank you so much for sharing with us, and for being the wonderful athlete and role model, and here all those years on, being even more wonderful, and being all these years on even more important. And all these years on being even more admirable and close to God, the gods. I've been talking with athlete, mother, trainer, wonderful human being, Lorraine Moller, who is iconic for us, but so much more as we found out. So much more and so much to teach us and to learn from. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. That was Reality Check Radio. You can send me a text at 2057 or an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. There's nothing more to say than that we had Lorraine Moller on with us on the radio. How lucky are we? You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.